Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. So we're back. We are back, and welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to us at Ivy League Murders. And as always, please, please, please hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and give us five stars. Every little bit helps. And if you want to contribute financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com and buy us a coffee or a few. So please. (laughs) We also have a donate button on our website, but giving us uh, five stars is free and very, very appreciated. So this week we have a Yale case, Sarah. So who do we have? So we have William Bishop. He had a Yale education, a beautiful family, and a job with the Foreign Services. If you looked at Bishop's resume, there was a bit of the James Bond about it. Foreign Service, spoke five languages, elite country clubs, skiing in the Alps. So how And why did this educated father of three go from living this Tony lifestyle to being a fugitive wanted for bludgeoning his entire family? So this week, our subject graduated from Yale, and we've covered Yale, Sarah, in past episodes. And Yale was established in 1701 in New Haven, Connecticut. And there's been many, very much in the press, I think we've all been on tenterhooks, is the presidential election. And so there were a few presidents that graduated from Yale. There was George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr. Clinton went to law school there. Yep. And William Howard Taft. And also, Laura, what has been in the news, too, is the Supreme Court. So there are four people on the Supreme Court who went to Yale or Yale Law School, and that's Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Sonia Sotomayor. And where did everyone else go, Sarah? Oh, I don't know. I think they went to Harvard. (laughs) No, there's a real lock on the Supreme Court. Like, there's like a Harvard-Yale. I don't have it in front of me, but for a decade. When I researched this, this is kind of problematic. I mean, if you think about two colleges really controlling the Supreme Court, two universities. But, you know, recently this changed with Amy Coney Barrett because she did not go to Harvard or Yale. Yeah, she 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 went to Rhodes College. And then Notre Dame Law School. So she is actually the first in a long time. She is the first non-Ivy Leaguer on the Supreme Court. So William Bishop was born on August 1st, 1936. He was the only child of Lobelia and William Bishop Sr., who was also a graduate of Yale. We also bring up legacies a little bit on this podcast. And so the legacy of having 
other family members go to the college in question, which is Yale. In other words, William Bishop Sr. went to Yale, so did Junior, and that becomes a legacy, essentially. And so Laura did a little research into it, and it seems like the acceptance rates are about 30% higher for people who are legacies. Yeah, maybe a little lower than that, but your chances of getting in are much, much higher. And it's very controversial because the main reason for legacies is financial, and Sarah's like a fifth-generation legacy. So that's it. What, what Laura's saying is I'm not smart enough to have gotten into Harvard <laughs> and I only would have it, you know, because my, my father got it. No, but there's good and bad to this. We can cover that at a later time. So we just wanted to make sure everyone understood the meaning there. But Bishop was raised in Pasadena, California, so middle class area. But I think he lived a little bit more of an upper middle class lifestyle, Sarah. Pasadena is pretty damn nice, I have to say. From what I could tell, his father was what was known as an independent geologist. But that meant that if he found oil, then they were rolling in wealth. And if he didn't find it, so I think financially, the bishops, it was kind of a roller coaster. Right. But I think he became accustomed to an affluent lifestyle early. Oh, totally. And got very, you mean Brad Jr. Brad Jr. Let's decide what we're going to call him. Yeah, I don't know. I tend to call him Bishop because his father isn't really in the picture. All Uh, right, we'll call him Bishop. Yeah. And, you know, he was kind of the golden boy. He played football in high school. He dated the high school cheerleader. Excellent grades. His acceptance at Yale was kind of a given. He also married his high school sweetheart and cheerleader. Her name was Annette Weiss. And Annette Weiss was from kind of a humble background. And Bishop apparently never let her forget it. It was like, you are so lucky to have found right, the right. kind of thing. I saved you. I saved you, right. Right, from the poor streets of Pasadena. Upon graduation from Yale in 59 and a four-year stint in the Army's counterintelligence, he joined the Foreign Service, and the bishops began a life abroad, which they actually began in Africa, and then they traveled throughout Europe for most of the time abroad. Right, because he would be like stationed in Africa, stationed in Europe, and a Along the way, they would have three sons, William Bradley Jr., Brent, and Jeffrey. Right. I get the sense about Bishop that he it, like he saw every career move as a stepping stone. No achievement was kind of enough for him in many ways. Right. You know I don't I mean? think he ever really was okay with where he was. Everything was kind of just another line on his resume. One thing we had read too is that when he was in the military, he was like a big risk taker. He was the kind of guy who would like run into fires and that kind of right. thing. Right. So that penchant for risk taking really served him well in the army. But when he joins the foreign service, that's all about like diplomacy and subtlety and not risk taking. But he continued this sort of risky behavior when he was in the foreign service. In other words, he learned Serbo-Croatian along the way. He was spying on Croatia. Relationships with Croatia at that time were really tenuous with the United States. So he engaged in behavior that I think his superiors were not happy with. Yeah, he also did engaged in behavior that could have cost him his job, which is high-risk behavior, like affairs. Right. My personal theory about Bishop is that he had like a James Bond complex. You know what I mean? He really wanted to beef up this image of himself as like a spy, as like taking risk, foreign service, skiing with his mistress in a fur hat on the Swiss Alps type of thing. Right. And as we've discovered when researching foreign service agents, a lot of it is administrative. It's really not as glamorous. Now, 80% of diplomats come from the foreign 
Foreign Service. And that was really his goal was to become a diplomat. That's right. That's um, right. I mean, the Foreign Service, is, it's kind of an interesting. A lot of it is kind of bureaucratic. There is the diplomacy part of it. And there is a lot of it seems kind of administrative from the research right. that we did. It's like passport issuances, which will come to bear on this case later on. Right, right. It, I don't think it was quite as exciting as Bishop wanted it to be. One thing he did master was languages when he was abroad. What languages did he speak? He spoke French? Spanish, Spanish Italian. Italian. Serbo-Croatian and English. And English. That's pretty amazing. Yes, and he even got a master's, I think, in Italian from, like, Middlebury's school in Italy. He loved Italy. Like, he totally moved on Italy. Yeah, Yeah. Italy was kind of his place. And I think that he felt, if he lived abroad, his life was more exotic. He's been stationed throughout Europe. And finally, in 1974, he's stationed in D.C., And he was really disappointed that he goes from kind of like this jet set lifestyle, I think, to being posted in Washington, D.C. The family settled into Bethesda, which is like a suburb of D.C. Nice suburb. Very nice suburb. With his mother, he has to borrow money from Lobelia, his mother, towards a down payment. And what, how much he, he borrowed about 30K, which, how much is that these days? Like 120,000 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, should maybe give paint the financial picture here real quickly for everybody so we're talking about like a million five house yeah he's making about 125 a year you know if you're looking at today's money you know which was about twenty four thousand a year then he borrowed thirty thousand from his mother then which would have been i mean to put a hundred and twenty five thousand down on a house at that point i mean how would he have ever paid that mortgage it was just oh he's living way above his means totally way above they're like joining country clubs i think the boys probably went to private school yeah i mean they were they were totally socializing with the washington elite which means you have to kind of like keep up appearances and that but they didn't have it financially they didn't and lobelia who had really been helping to supplement this lifestyle with money she had received from the father's death her money is running out we're kind of painting the picture here of where they are financially going into washington i think he's probably expecting a raise that's right setting up this lifestyle i'm sure being from all accounts he was a very controlling patriarch and i'm sure he kept a very tight control of the finances in terms of like here Annette here's twenty dollars this week so that you can buy the boys a haircut or whatever yeah I mean he didn't even Uh, allow speaking when he was speaking at the dinner table I'm sure she had no idea what the finances were he didn't allow her to work she loved Washington she loved Bethesda she also loved the stability that they weren't bouncing think about it you've got three kids and you're bouncing them back and forth into schools from Africa I mean it all sounds very exciting but kids are kids and they make their friends. Let's say you're stationed in Botswana, you make your friends there and then you're yanked out and brought to new places. These are young kids. And she's also, I feel, coming into her own. She's enrolling in school, getting a master's in art. She's playing tennis with other women. She's making friends. Things that I think he finds quite threatening because she doesn't want to move again. And he sees this as her not supporting his career. Being stuck in a suburban life outside of Washington. And Annette is kind of finding new independence. We have to keep in mind, too, that Bishop was in therapy three to five times a week with a therapist by the name of Frank Caprio. Bishop was taking an antidepressant 
called Cerex, which is a benzodiazepine. Which would be like a Valium or a Xanax. Right. Because um, there has been articles written about how this medication may have affected future events. Yes. And, uh, you know, I did some research on this. And and we'll speak to that a little bit later. Right. But it, it just... But, it, just, but he was taking, Bishop was taking it for depression and insomnia. And but, but it does paint like a picture of suburban lifestyle, desk job at Washington. Bishop had an image of himself, I think, as a real international spy type. Right. What we see is like a middle-aged man who's going to his desk job every day and like taking benzos at night to sleep. Yeah. I don't know why I I just thought of the father in The Incredibles where the father is like a superhero and then he's like working for an insurance company because he can't you have to see the Incredibles. Sir, I don't like animation. Oh, for Christ's sake. No, I, I don't either. But Incredibles I actually incredible. think I saw it with my daughter once, but I have okay. like an animation issue. I don't want listeners to have a problem with me. <laughs> I do. I have a really... When I was pregnant, I was worried I might not be a good mother because of it. <laughs> Owen's in charge of animation in our house. Oh my god, that's so hilarious. Well, we have to watch The Incredibles. I'm sorry. It's going to have to suffer. I know. I have seen it, but it's been years. So at this time, also though, Annette Bishop, she was also suffering from panic attacks. Yeah, so life is not and going living great. living with his mother, who he owes money to. It just seems so... Oh god, man. It just seems... He doesn't want to stay in Washington, and he is expecting to be promoted. So that's his plan. He's expecting to be promoted, and right, he's kind of like sucking it up for the promotion. He wants to be a diplomat, right. by the way. He wants to be stationed somewhere exciting like Italy as a diplomat. That's what he's working towards. Right. So what happens? Well, what happens is on March 1st, 1976, he gets final confirmation that we know now that he actually probably knew for a few weeks prior that he was not going to get this promotion. I think that he was probably holding out like a little hope because this job would have been posted publicly. I think Bishop's own psychology is he has a total superiority complex he's superman he's james bond and the fact that people who he considers lesser than himself being promoted to this position that he wanted that is what he is facing on that particular day this is a public posting yeah i was saying like the public part of it also is very humiliating but the public proclamation of like dude you're not as great as right you're not good enough and so this goes up and sometimes people paint this as he just snapped he was aware that a he, couple of weeks a couple of weeks, weeks in advance but this was like the final straw and it goes up he tells his secretary he's not feeling well and he leaves for the day and he drives his motor he, he had a motorcycle sarah so that made me of part course. of his james Duh. bond thing yeah exactly and he drives his motorcycle home exchanges it for the family station wagon and then sets about his plan uh, his and plan he, his yeah. series of errands which really will make up his kind of murder kit so what he does is he goes to the bank and he withdraws all of the money in their entire savings which is four hundred dollars which is so pathetic right i'm which, sorry it should be nineteen hundred dollars today but i mean that's all they have and they're living in a million dollar house he goes to sears and purchases a sledgehammer and a gas can then he fills up the car which is a chevy malibu with gas 
at a Texaco and then you stop. But he also gets a gas can. No, the- he gets the gas can at Sears. Oh, he does. Okay. Yeah. And he fills up the gas can as well. I'm sorry. It's at this gas station. Then he goes to a hardware store and gets a shovel and a pitchfork. So he's ready. So and- he's ready. And it, this whole idea that, oh gosh, he snapped. No, he's like preparing his murder kit basically at this point. Yeah. I know? mean, I think that like, it's pretty clear that this plan didn't come out of nowhere. I don't think that he decided that morning or when he saw that listing, I'm going to set about this carefully prepared. He returns home probably between 7.30 and 8. Sarah, he has dinner with them. Right, with his family. He has dinner with his family. I mean, this is so, it's just so, so scary and, and sad. And then the kids go to bed and his mother goes to walk the family dog, you know, like a normal evening. Yep. And his wife goes into the living room to work on, you know, a project or some art of some sort. And he kills his wife first. Yep. He attacks her from behind and he bludgeons her to death. So, and then this is the part, I, it's it's hard to even say. So then he went into his son's rooms and two of them slept in the same room. In the same room, yeah. And he, one by one, he bludgeons them as well. So when he was done, he waited for his mother to return from her walk with the dog and he killed her last. She locked herself in a bathroom to try to escape him to no avail. And there were some marks around her neck. So they think either he strangled her or she just died from fright, basically. It's so hideous. I mean, it's absolutely hideous. And then, I mean, he's so calculated. Because she comes back with the dog and there's blood like all over the house. Oh, everywhere. I mean, she obviously knew steps into the house that there had been. But for the dog lovers, he did spare the dog. He spared the dog. And then he waits. He showers, he changes, he takes his bloody clothes and puts them in a ball. Like uh, above this like bureau kind of thing. Like, like weird, he like he's hiding them he when the whole house is covered in blood. Yeah, it's not like he cleans up this crime scene at all, but he waits. He waits for his neighbors to go to bed and then he piles the bodies into his Chevy Malibu. and Five bodies. Five bodies and drives off. And where does he drive to? So, Sarah, he drives 300 miles through the night to North Carolina to a county so small, it has the smallest population of any county in North Carolina. Right. And to a road, a logging road, that's not even on maps. Talk about planning. It's not like he drove random. I bet you he had staked this place out. No, he had to have known. You don't drive through the night, you know, to this remote road that you never could have found. Yeah. It's just not something that you could find if you weren't aware of it. I think he underestimates how hard the ground is because he starts to dig the whole flea and it's March. I mean, it's March, it's mountains. The ground is really hard, you know, so he's laboring away trying to dig a hole. The, the hole is like two feet, two feet deep. deep. Right? He's right. And it's also sandy, so he's just not able to do it. So what he does is he puts them in a shallow grave. I, I'm going to call them victims. I don't like to, you know, I yes, hate, of course. you know, yeah. refer to them as bodies. But he puts the victims in this, in this shallow grave and he takes the gas and he sets them on fire and he doesn't even try to hide the evidence of the crime he leaves the gas can there he leaves the shovel there and he leaves yeah he drives away and he drives 300 miles away that's right but in the meantime in this particular part of the the forest in north carolina north carolina they had these smoke towers because i guess forest fires had been an issue so they noticed the smoke from this fire and at first they think like oh boy you know some camper has like let their fire 
get out of control. Let's go and check it out. And to their horror, these poor rangers go, Ranger, and, yeah. get, go and check it out. And they see like a human leg sticking out of this. Like Oh, it's like a shocking, head. shocking yeah. discovery. Yeah. Had he not set them on fire, they may never have been discovered because this was such a remote area. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But they were discovered and they had no identification on them. Yeah, after he does this hideous thing. Yes. So what are his known movements after that? Like, what does he do with the car? So he drives 300 miles away, and he actually goes to Tennessee, to a remote area called Elkmont, which used to be a vacation area for the wealthy. It's really pretty spooky. Like, I think you posted pictures of it. I know I haven't, but I will. Oh, my God. It's really... It's like a ghost town. It's a ghost town. It's so gloomy. So that's where he deposits the car. Yeah, which is another place that he had to have been before. It's actually a common camping area now but it's nobody lives there yeah it's like the kind of place you look at and you're like okay it's haunted you know because it used to be right the wealthy from knoxville used to go there and some are there so the car is left there and it's there for days before somebody notices it and looks in and sees that there's blood in it and calls the police like once again incredibly sloppy about leaving all kinds of evidence there is lots of different things found in the car there's clothes there's a gun there's blood everywhere there's medication with his name with on his it. name on it but so bring us back to the bishop house at this point because mm-hmm. you've got these various crime scenes actually but then keep in mind guys it's 1976 you've got multi states you've got tennessee involved now you've got bethesda maryland you have north got carolina north carolina people are finding these things but they're not quite connecting the dots yet and so what happened is that bishop's neighbors started to get really suspicious here was a family of three boys who are i'm sure they're out there playing baseball and out on the streets and running around and yelling and bishop going back and forth to work bishop's mother walking the dog and going on her rocks and there's no activity it's completely quiet at the bishop home so after about a week the neighbors are like what is up with this and they call the police for a well-being check they the do and north carolina is looking and contacting other police departments because you know there aren't computers then they right. to see if there's any missing families so they have no idea on the family right they do a welfare check one foot in the door and they know there's been a massacre there's blood all over the place. right although they initially think that the whole family are victim. It doesn't take too long because they are able to trace the shovel back to the, the hardware store. And when they do, there's a flyer at the hardware store with the Bishop family's picture on it that oh, says they're missing. Oh, boy. Because, yeah. and then they are able to identify them and there are five bodies, not six. That's right. And so they figure out that Bishop, Bishop is, is the perpetrator and he is indicted in absentia. Yes. And then then the manhunt begins. That's right. And so part of one of the first people that they question is actually Frank Caprio, who is, if you remember, was Bishop's therapist. He really stands behind doctor-client privilege, and he won't give any information. But you really wonder what the hell Bishop told him because actually Caprio kind of hung up as he you know like he left his practice pretty soon thereafter right and and just to speak to the meds because this has been an issue benzos are not medications that make you violent right they make you tired Laura's done some research yes personal research (laughs) 
<laughs> we they, won't get it. They don't make you violent. You know, these are not uppers. I mean, we've seen in other cases like Jeffrey McDonald where he was taking Care, speed. Careful. But, you know, these are medications. I, I don't even know why he would have been taking this for depression, insomnia, I understand. Yeah, but, but it's the 70s. Everyone's on Valium. They're right. giving out pills like freaking candy. Sure, point, sure. But I, I just want to say that I don't think that this medication had absolutely anything to do with this Mm, I want to. I would want to look into the the indicators on it. I I don't look. Look, was he going to do it without the medication? Probably. I don't think it had anything to do with it. You're not God, Laura. Moving on. So, you know what? Where the hell did Bishop go? Big manhunt goes on. So, they bring in FBI. He's crossed state lines. They bring in dogs. They are able to track him to the visitor center in this campground near Elkmont. That's the last the dogs are tracking him to. But here's the interesting thing. And you had told me you thought he had help. Talk to me about Elkmont and how close it is, how rural or how remote was it without having somebody come and pick him up in a car. Then he would have to have gone up. Like this is where people go to go hiking in the Smokies, in the Smoky Mountains. Smokies are huge. Right. Which is really where the last place the dogs caught his scent. So he either went and went off. You know, he was an outdoorsman, a survivalist, but he either went off and, and to live in the Smokies, which they say you wouldn't have been able to survive. Right. Even like hardcore survivors. Even hardcore could, not, could yeah. not and died. Right. Or he had help and got out of there. Right. Now, I don't believe or have any indicator that he had any gear or anything to sustain him to be camping. But also remember, there's a pretty credible sighting of him a couple of days after the right. murder. Right. So, actually, it's actually considered a credible sighting of yes. him. A day or two after the murder in North Carolina at a sporting goods store, he's seen with a woman who appears to be Latin and with the dog, which makes it... Yes. And the, the store clerk, when he's shown a picture of Bishop, he positively identifies him. So I feel like this is me you too, know. and the dog really like solidifies it for me. But and and who's this woman? Did she help him unknowingly? Did he kill her? We have no, no idea. We don't know. He was That's buying Converse sneakers, which really makes sense that he would have needed new shoes. Yeah. That's a real mystery. And then basically that's like the last really confirmed sighting we have of him. And then we really don't know. I mean, we yes. have sightings after that, several sightings after that, but nothing confirmed. I want to ask you, you did some research, Laura, into family annihilators. And so Bishop is considered a family annihilator. Yes. But most family annihilators, as you pointed out, actually kill themselves after killing their families. It's kind of like a murder-suicide. Yeah, generally. I mean, we're all, I think most people are familiar with Chris Watts, which has been the news recently, and he didn't kill himself. So that was a big case where someone didn't kill themselves, which is rare. Remind our listeners, Chris Watts is the guy who... He killed his pregnant wife and two two daughters. But generally, they do kill themselves. So everything we know about, or what we know is generally speculative, because there really aren't many family annihilators to study. 
Break it down, though. What are the types of family? Well, they, we, we put it in four categories. Self-righteous, and these are the ones that blame their mother. Blame, the, not their mothers, the mother. So they want to, like, punish the mother. So they would use... You mean the, children, punish the, the wife, or The wife, right. Yeah, the, mother, yeah, yeah. the mother of their children, right? Right. We have the disappointed killers who really feel let down by those around them, especially the wife and children. And they may feel that the wife and children have made bad choices. Mm-hmm. You see this... Some people might be familiar with John List, another... Uh, family annihilator who was missing for many years. We have the anomic killer, which I think we see here, which is the killer who considers the family an extension of his economic success. And once this breaks down, he sees them as disposable. And, you know, he'd rather see his family die than see his failure. And then we have the paranoid killer, and this is the one who sees an immediate threat from, like, the legal system or social services. And, you know, you sometimes see this when a person will kill the family when, you know, social services or the police are coming in. But I have to weigh in here a little bit, and I think Bishop... I really do think he had sort of a James Bond complex and the getting out at some villa in Italy in a scuba suit and unzipping it to reveal your tux does not jibe with having a family of three where you're changing diapers and your wife is in sweatpants. I don't think it jibed with his image of himself. You see, I think it was much deeper than that. I think it was the economic failure and the failure of because I think he was really able as long as he was succeeding in his career he was really able to keep up that lifestyle. I don't think his wife really got in the way of him having affairs and and traveling. I think it was that he was not succeeding and it was kind of, it was going to crumble around him and he couldn't bear for his family to see him fail. That's right. No, that's true. Mm. But, But I don't get the sense that their opinion mattered that much to him though but with the narcissistic family annihilator you know he sees the family as an extension of himself right so sarah there's actually a a number of sightings nothing confirmed like we have with the sighting in north carolina but some pretty interesting ones there's one in a public park in 78 an old neighbor sees, uh, or associate, not neighbor, sees him in a bathroom in Sorrento in 79 and says he actually calls out to him and he kind of runs away. Wow. And then in 94, there's a pretty interesting one in a train station, right? Yes. So what happens, at, this is in Basel, Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> so a former neighbor of Bishop's is in a train, stopped at a platform. On the opposite track, another train pulls up. And how weird is this? She looks through the window to the other train and sees Bishop on that opposite train and their eyes meet and then the train pulls away. It's so spooky. You know what? Who knows how it's 20 years later. If you think about it, he disappears in 76. This is 1994. That's a long time, but he's got a very distinctive face. I know you don't give any credibility to witness testimony. Yeah, I don't give much credibility to eyewitness testimony. I, I mean, people, I think, tend to try to interject themselves into high profile cases, even subconsciously. In 2014, actually, there was a John Doe who died and was buried and they were trying to identify him and put his picture in the paper and he had a striking resemblance to Bishop and he was actually exhumed but DNA didn't match so he could have gone off into the Smoky Mountains and died. I personally think that he was such a narcissist that 
that's probably not what happened. And had he killed himself, it would have probably been in more of a grand way that everybody would have known about. I um, think so too. And plus, the, the remember, there's that credible sighting two days after the murder where they see him buying sneakers. Right. You know? And I think that somebody probably a woman would have may have helped him you know not knowing you know he was very manipulative probably unknown to her that he was killing his family keep in mind too okay he is if he was a fugitive and i believe he was a fugitive he had passport know-how he had five languages under his belt he also had counterintelligence I'm sure he's great at disguises. You know, as a private investigator, I'm pretty good at disguises. I was going to say, as, as Sarah has like a disguise closet. I do have <laughs> many, many wigs. And uh, yeah, I have been been a soccer mom. I've been a homeless person. I've been a real estate person. I, I've really, you know, I have a, I have a whole uh, collection of disguises. But Bishop's pretty next level, man. He could have gone over to Europe and just integrated himself into any little city in the Italian Alps and fit in just perfectly. Yeah, and I think that it's hard to think of now, but even I can remember traveling pre-9-11 and how easy it was. And I mean, Much forget easier. in the 70s when you it was like getting on a bus. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think he was involved in the in when, in the development of passports. So he would have... He would have been able been, to forge that stuff and right. make it almost flawless. Yeah, yeah flawless. I mean, he may have... I think he probably planned this. He may have had these passports ready, plan, to, go. ready to go. So yeah, I mean, I think we trained him our government trained him and he had a lot of knowledge about how to be a fugitive and be evasive and be evasive talk about you have a great theory about so the i DNA. mean I, I i'm just really curious why they haven't done familial dna because bishop was in his early 40s when he disappeared i think he probably went to italy and it's quite possible he had a whole nother family that's true yeah. so i just especially today where people give up their dna so so easily i mean it's quite possible he had more children grandchildren and that he could be traced that way and i'm, I'm just wondering if that had ever and i couldn't find anything i mean it seems like this case has really been kind of given up on and I, I just just really an interesting thought because he is still bishop to this day I think it's still like 10 FBI's most wanted he was, he's been taken off the list it's still considered an active case yes. an open case but and there have been artist renderings of him by the way and we'll post those both as a both in drawings and they also did like a bust of him right. in like a three-dimensional and they aged it appropriately he's been missing since 76 so that's what 43 years or 44 years i now. think at this point dna would be the that's the best way i mean he's in his 80s now you and know, the, you know he probably lives in some small village in italy right and in, you know in the elk kind of thing, yeah you know, i mean and, i don't uh, think that you know after all these years the chances of getting him uh, that way i think are remote but so, I, so the I dna wanna, is yes i think you're absolutely dna is a great way and but also i want to i want to reach out to my european friends my friends in ireland ones who often oftentimes travel to Italy <laughs> keep an eye out for this guy and these are my dear dear friends and they've been super supportive of the podcast and that's Jonathan Stanistreet my Facebook friend Jonathan I love, I love him oh my god he's so hilarious. oh my god and he, he, see I'm, I'm up it's so early in the morning and I love the tie see I love our European friends because yes 
I wake up at like five in the morning. Absolutely. So I, I love people who are on different time zones and I can like play with in the morning. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Jonathan's one of them. And Shauna Keaveney and the Michelles and the Heenies and Mick Heaney. And oh my God, I just like, I miss my Irish friends. So, so she much. wants you guys to find Bishop. I want you guys to find Bishop. You're on a mm-hmm. mission. Okay. He's older now. He's probably not so dangerous. And go, please go to Italy and find him. Okay. Could I you just do like Sarah. Us? If we could get some of his DNA, I think we could probably do a, like a Kickstarter. I want it coming from to, the libertarian, you know, yeah, that to, you are, that you, you know. But I get it. No, I. Well, I, 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 I don't believe that you should give up your DNA. But if you're stupid enough to give up your DNA, <laughs> then then like let let us find the criminal in your family. You're not going to find the criminal in my family because I'm not giving up my DNA. But um, I think if you're convicted of a crime, your DNA should go in a database. I believe that. Yeah. I don't believe if you're arrested, your, yeah. your DNA should be taken from you. Yeah. Not until you're convicted. That's true. I still think this guy is findable. So let's find him. Uh, let's find him. Uh, I also want to do a big shout out to my mom, who's been like our oh, huge, Kathy. huge, huge supporter. Oh, Kathy, you're I mean, doll. my mom, it, it's a challenge for her to, to, to listen to podcasts. She's a little app challenge, but she listens on our website, which um, is actually a great way to listen if if you if you don't know how to listen with an app. You can just listen directly That's on right. our website. But my mom is really great. She actually worked at Harvard uh, in, li- in the library at Widener. And she gets us a lot of our books, so she's kind of like our. Uh, oh, to- yeah. yeah, she yeah. she she's actually bothering me right now for the seven books I have outstanding. <laughs> but uh, Laura, she, return the books. But she, and Kathy, thank you. I'm on so, it. So okay. yeah, mom, we really appreciate all the support and uh, all the help. So listeners, please hold on while we play a trailer for a great podcast called On Their Behalf by Asia and Devin. And their podcast On Their Behalf really highlights cases where the victims are underrepresented. And it's fantastic. So here's their trailer. Hello, my name is Asia. And I'm Devin. And we are the hosts of On Their Behalf, a true crime podcast. Every Wednesday, we cover underrepresented cases of BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, and more, with the occasional high-profile case thrown in here and there. Our media and justice systems seem to ignore the cases of people of color and or people of different sexual orientations while highlighting cases of white people. Our goal is to change that by highlighting the cases of people who are overlooked and no longer have a voice, telling the case on their behalf. Follow us on Instagram at ontheirbehalf underscore pod and subscribe to On Their Behalf, a true crime podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.